Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. told me a month ago that I'd be interviewing Mark Kurlansky on my podcast, I'd say you were yanking my chain. This is episode 267 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, recording live in the basement while under quarantine. If there is one highlight to this quarantine business so far, it would be interviewing Mark Kurlansky. I've been reading his books for years, more than any other author. I own more of his books than any other author, except for Bill Bryson. To quote Office Space, I celebrate his entire collection. Have you met Mr. Kalansky over Skype is something I never thought would happen. This is like meeting E.O. Wilson or David Attenborough. In this episode, we discuss Mr. Kalansky's life as an angler and author in his new book, Salmon, A Fish, the Earth, and the History of Their Common Fate. You may learn more about Salmon in the last segment of this podcast than you've known your entire life. I don't have much to look forward to these days, but I'm eagerly awaiting the arrival of Salmon. This is a beautiful book full of high-res color images, recipes, and stories you will find nowhere else. For more information, please visit markkurlansky.com, M-A-R-K-K-U-R-L-A-N-S-K-Y.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Codlansky. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. I am truly ecstatic for this experience. Thank you, Mr. Kalansky, for your time. So let's get this started. For those who may not have read your books and seen the, the notes and picture on the back, is there a celebrity you most resemble that listeners could picture while they listen? I'm sorry, is there a celebrity? Yes. Have you been informed you look like anybody in particular? Yes, 
but I, I'm not encouraging it. Okay. <laughs> People keep telling me I look like Ernest Hemingway. With the beard? Okay. I, I just think anybody who's the right size and has a white beard is accused of looking like Hemingway. Right. And they all get together in Key West once a year for that meetup, the Ernest Hemingway doppelgangers. Right. Yeah. And where are you now? Where are we checking in with you? I'm in Manhattan. Okay. Particular neighborhood? Upper West Side. All right. It's been a long time since I've been up there. I usually stay more downtown. And how is your coronavirus quarantine going? Have you been stuck at home? Well, I have an office across the street from home, so I sneak over sometimes. But I haven't left my block in weeks. Is there a particular place you're supposed to be during this, doing a book tour possibly? Were you even traveling to do? I, well, I, I was on a book tour, a, a fairly lengthy book tour, about 25 events. And I did about six of them. I did a couple in New York and a couple in Boston and two or three in Maine. And then I went down to D.C. And then it was getting too crazy. Not so much the events at that point, but just going to airports and getting on planes and wondering. They were canceling a lot of flights and stuff. And so I, I yeah, just called everything off. And ha did you stock up on anything in particular? I know New Yorkers usually are space limited. Well, yes, dog food and cat food. <laughs> I'm assuming you have a cat and a dog then. Not yeah, that you're just that, eating cat that, food. That would explain that one. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes you have to question people. Right. And right. has this given you any ideas for a possible book on pandemics and the history of them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, not a bad idea. I'm not sure it's something I want to do. You know, I write um, fiction as well as nonfiction. I, I think there's some really interesting fiction possibilities set in a pandemic, but I haven't really developed any ideas of something in the back of my head. All right. Well, let's start learning about you before we go into your, your life as an author and your most current book, which I'm very excited. I'm eagerly awaiting its arrival. Uh, so you grew up in Connecticut. What was life like up there? In Hartford. Well, how should I describe it? I mean, it was, I was in a fairly urban area. I was in a suburb of Hartford, but not what you usually think of as a suburb. It was an industrial suburb, you know, factories and factory workers and a uh, very blue-collar place. But even then, I had this strange impulse to fish. And I found a pond that had fish in it, and I went to the hardware store and got a hook and caught some worms and tied string to a branch and started catching these fish. That was the beginning of my lifelong fishing thing. I don't know exactly what it is. I see fish in the water, and I have to catch them. Is that where you got the idea for some of your more aquatic-themed books, being just a passionate person about fish themselves? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I got more involved in that. I, when I was like 17, 18, 19, I worked on commercial fishing boats. So I've always been pretty involved in, in uh, fishing. And actually, it's funny to think about, but at the time... I was thinking more about fiction than nonfiction, and I had this idea that, you know, 
going to sea was a good thing for a writer to do. I had the option to go to war, and I thought that was really wrong thing to do. So I, I didn't uh, do that. So I went to sea instead. Was that the late sixties? Yeah. Okay. And you also were into theater. So theater before writing. I was uh, planning on being a playwright. I was a playwright. I wrote a number of plays, had some produced. Um, I uh, I love playwriting. I I got somewhat disenchanted with theater in New York. I saw how it was becoming this kind of tourist entertainment and not not at all what it had been in the sixties, which was kind of interesting and experimental and political and a much more interesting thing. Did being on a ship give you some ideas for plays? No. You mean on fishing and fishing vessels? Yeah, when you were out avoiding the war. You well, plenty of time to think when you're out there. You don't really. Well, it's sort of in between times you do, but there's always something to do. You know, you got to string some bait or do something. There's not a lot of moping around on, on commercial fishing boats here. You know, it's, it's pretty demanding. You know, I was out in open ocean in fairly small, unstable boats. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how to stay on my feet. You know? What were some of the fish you were catching? I, I loved it. Well, you know, I, I did some bottom dragging for bottom fish, like uh, cod and haddock and stuff like that. But I, um, my best job was with a, uh, was a lobsterman. And um, it, it wasn't the way they think of lobstering now. I mean, we went far out in the ocean and hauled pots and, you know, two, three hundred feet of water. It was uh, uh, pretty tough, but uh, enjoyable in its way. Uh, I got hired, of course, not because I had any great skills, but because I, w I was large. <laughs> could, could haul three water log wooden pots through 200 feet of line. And that was all by hand? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a muscle skill most people don't have. Yeah. Everything's done for them these days. Yeah, I mean, nowadays... Sometimes I'll be around a, in a fishing community and there'll be lobster guys I know and they're, they're in town, they haven't gone out. And I, I'll say, why didn't you go out? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, my, 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 my wind's broken. I had nothing to haul the pots with. And I'll just laugh to myself. <laughs> you do it the manual way. Right. Yeah. So when did you start deciding that writing would possibly be a career for you? Did it just come that way? Or did... I, I, I made that decision when I was in the third grade, maybe earlier, but that's just basically when I learned how to write words on paper, I decided this is what I was going to do for a living. Always wanted to be a writer and, and, and spent lots of time as a kid, just locked up in my room writing. Were you reading and getting inspiration and with styles and prose and, and voice from other authors at that time, or was this all just sort of freehand? I, I read a lot. I mean, I've always been a always been a big reader. I read a few books a week. Always have. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's. But I was I was writing when I was a little kid, and in fact, I I wrote a novel in the third or fourth grade, which ironically was about a fish. What did your teachers think? Did it go anywhere? Oh, my teachers hated me. My teachers hated me because they're used to kids producing one or two pages to read, and I'd hand them like sixty pages. Wow! Think, oh God, I got to read all this. Is that on a typewriter or by hand? By hand, by hand. They thought I was a real nuisance. Do you still have any of those old writings? No, no, I don't. And if I did, I would, I would burn them to make sure that I don't. Somebody doesn't find them when I die and decide to publish them. So from several of the books I've read of yours, and, and I've read a, a bunch, and I'm trying to decide if I want to read Salt Next or Bird's Eye. Those both came, I'm not Bird's Eye. Uh, uh, well, he's in it, uh, the paper book. Uh -huh. uh, but there's definitely a connection and theme throughout a lot of your books, whether it be people or organisms or places. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I, uh, Salmon is my 33rd book. Wow. And when you've written that many books, you do start to realize these, these themes and these things they have in common that were completely unintended. So basically, you're learning something about yourself. And while I was reading the book on Bob Birdseye, my dad mentioned that my great-grandfather used to grow green beans for him. Oh, yeah? In New Jersey, way back in the day. Yeah. And then our friend's aunt invented the tater tot working for Birdseye. <laughs> Her name was Aunt Fernanda. That must have been in uh, general food days. Yeah. They didn't make a whole lot of money off of it. They have a small little house in uh, maybe Manitoba that they go to in the summers. Hey, you think inventing the tater tot would have been a multi-million dollar? Yeah, you would think that would, you know. It was French fry scraps, and she just molded them together and threw them in a fryer. Well, that idea should be worth a fortune. She did something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> just like the woman that invented the fidget spinner when every kid had one of those a couple years ago. That woman didn't make a penny. Really? Mm-hmm. So you, when do you decide to pick a topic, be it uh, the ones I've read, the history of the Basque people or Bob Birdseye, or I just finished uh, yesterday, A Chosen Few. Where do the ideas after 33 books, where do these come from? It's a good question. I don't really know. I always have ideas for books. I have. What do I have? I have I have three books under contract right now after this uh, salmon book. Two of which I've um, one of which I've finished writing and one of which I'm close to finishing and one of which I haven't started. But I, I, I don't know. I always have ideas. Is there a time frame that it takes to write one? How often do you produce a book for your publishers? Well, that's a tricky question. I mean, I seem to come out with about a book a year, but it takes me more than a year to uh, produce a book. With A Chosen Few, were those interviews you did with all of those people? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that must have taken a while. Were you in Europe? Yes. Most of yeah. that? I, was, I was based in Paris and uh, they were all recorded. And I don't know if those old, you know, cassettes if they lose their um, 
magic or not, but I should, if they're still working, I should donate them to somebody because they're really pretty interesting documents, all these survivors that I interviewed. It reminded me a lot of hanging out with my great-grandmother when I was a kid who only spoke Yiddish and would tell stories that we recorded on a VCR, but nobody could understand it. Yeah, I um, I, I kind of had to spruce up my Yiddish for that book. I did some interviews in Yiddish. I mean, I was dealing with a lot of languages, so I was I'm fluent in French and I'm okay in German. So I'm no good in Slavic languages, but in Czechoslovakia, people speak German and in Poland, they speak French. And um, but, you know, like in Hungary, they speak Hungarian. <laughs> Forget it. And, uh, but in a lot of cases, they spoke Yiddish. And then so I could use that. That's what my grandparents would argue. And as a child, I just remember my grandmother yelling at my grandfather. He would make a martini at nine in the morning for breakfast, and she would just yell at him in Yiddish. And we didn't, we just knew he was in trouble. We didn't understand a thing. Yeah. Well, my, uh, it was my father's first language, but he didn't speak to us in it. But he, that wing of the family only spoke Yiddish when they got together, but not to us. But, you know, you're, you're just sitting in the room and it's in the nature of kids not to want to be left out. So you pay attention. And a lot of your books include recipes. Was it just not sort of the theme of, of that book to include, say, Jewish recipes uh, with such tragic subject in the book i hadn't gotten on my recipe kick yet okay that was my second book my first book which is about the caribbean unfortunately doesn't have recipes either my third book was cod and that's when i started doing recipes there were some fantastic old-time recipes in the oyster book too those were yep. really interesting just the ingredients and things people ate back in in the day right, right. well that's what's interesting about old recipes, what they tell you about a society. There's some pretty interesting recipes in my salmon book. Not, not all of which I would advise eating, but I mean, there's some Native American recipes that are kind of frightening. Interesting. And this woman kept giving me recipes for uh, fish heads, salmon heads. Several, several women gave me recipes for salmon heads, but they all said that you keep it in the water until it gets fuzzy. And I kept saying, fuzzy? What do you mean fuzzy? And finally this woman whispered in my ear, rotten. Oh. <laughs> my in-laws are from Soviet, Soviet Russia, and they make this fish head soup that it smells. I don't know if it's a similar process, but whew. What do they, they call it? I'd have to ask my wife. I don't know. They barely speak English, uh, even though they've been here since 79. Um, I, I, have a, I have a traditional um, Russian fish soup, soup recipe in, in my book that I got from uh, the Kamchatka. Yeah, well, let's get into all of that. So let's get into the salmon book. This seems to be your first book that deals, from what I will read and read, that with Pacific fish. Seems mostly Atlantic-based with cod, uh, Gloucester bird's eye yeah well i guess i'm an atlantic person but uh yeah i wanted to talk about all the salmon of the world you know it's two genuses about seven or eight species a lot of important things in common and what makes this the most important environmental writing you've done up to, to date in a word i guess i would say panic 
it's just it's just I, I've just started to realize that you know I've I've spent my life I don't always write about environmental issues but I often do and I have for a long long time even as a newspaper reporter you know it's it's always been about how you know we have to do things better and we have to make things work better and I'm now at a point or the world is at a point where it's just uh, we have no choice. We have to fix some things or th this planet is going to become unlivable. Uh, it's absolutely frightening. The, the most terrifying thing I have ever learned in, was in doing this book, I, I realized because I, Atlantic salmon are getting fewer and fewer returns to the rivers. And there's basically no commercial fisheries or hardly any commercial fisheries of Atlantic salmon anymore. So what's happening to the fish? Why aren't they returning? And it turns out that because of climate change, carbon dioxide, but carbon dioxide loves water. So something like a third of the carbon dioxide on land ends up in the ocean. And it changes the hydrogen uh, configuration of the ocean, uh, which results in uh, less growth for certain creatures such as zooplankton and small fish such as capelin. And you know, this is the stuff that big fish like salmon and cod feed on. So what's happening is that the Atlantic Ocean is losing its carrying capacity. It is losing its ability to feed the animals that live in it. I mean, that is terrifying. Because if that happens, we're really sunk. Do you think that while we're going through this crisis right now and everyone's at home that a lot of organisms on the planet are getting a break from all the detrimental effects we do to them the overfishing the pollution that we're just giving them a slight little break to get a comeback well you know some things are we're, we're certainly doing less carbon emissions and we're we're doing um uh less pollution and uh friends in la have been telling me how beautiful the air looks these days on the other hand, you know, just when we were beginning to make some progress in reducing the use of plastic, we're all of a sudden using a lot of plastic. Throwaway gloves and everything coming, you know, everybody wants things that they can throw away, you know. Disposable. Right. That was one thing when my in-laws came here to America, one of my father-in-law's first jobs was at the Playboy Club in Columbus, Ohio, and the washing machine was broken, so they were using paper plates and plastic silverware and he started washing the plastic forks and they said were you crazy he couldn't imagine that you would use something once and throw it away from where he came from right he lost his job over that oh really because he he didn't understand disposable plastic at midway usa we know the ar-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern american history Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. I, I actually wash plastic forks. I mean, I... I I get them. I, I, I don't ask for them, but sometimes I get them in, in carry-out deliveries. And I can't bring myself to throw them out. So I wash them and reuse them. You know, I don't even like them. You know? 
my wife still collects them. We have a drawer of plastic utensils. Yeah, me too. I wish somebody would take them. <laughs> How did you get involved with Patagonia for this publishing? They contacted me and they really wanted me to do this book. And I thought it was a little odd because, you know, in my mind, they're basically a clothing chain. But they do have a publishing division. They had a lot of conversations with my agent about what a book contract has to look like. And, and we finally worked it out. They were very uh, enthusiastic. Did they throw any waiters your way? Any hats, gloves? <laughs> boots. They gave me some boots. Nice. Very nice. But you're probably not using them now. I don't know if any place is open. I was talking to a guy yesterday in Manchester, Vermont, which is the patent kill, which is a place where I like to fish for trout. And he said that it's open to locals, but out-of-state people have to quarantine themselves for 14 days before they can go fishing. Interesting. Yeah. I believe <laughs> Wyoming today eliminated out-of-state fishing licenses to keep outsiders from coming in. Right. Which, you know, I mean, the whole reason that states have fish and game apartments, departments is to make money on out-of-state licenses. Yeah, so, D Washington, D.C. hasn't figured that out yet. An out-of-state license is $13 for the year. Really? Yes. Which makes my life easy because clients for may not want to spend a amount for a Virginia license. So we'll fish somewhere with D.C. regulations. Are there places you can fish in D.C.? Oh, absolutely. The Tidal Basin, you can fish. Uh, the ponds near the monuments. You've got the, the Shad are coming in the Potomac right now. The Shad, the Herring, the Striped Bass. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my friends caught a snakehead this morning, Shad fishing. Yeah. No, I was, I was thinking in terms of uh, fly fishing. Yeah, this is all fly. I don't do any other type of fishing, only fly fishing. So you catch Shad on a fly? Oh, yes. We'll use a two-fly rig. I'll have to send you some. And I tell people shad fishing is the least complicated yet most rewarding type of fly fishing you could come across. And it happens to be in all the major cities along the East Coast where the fall lines are. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they swim up the Hudson, so they probably swim right by me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they haven't made it into the Great Lakes with the alewives, though. I don't think they've actually made it that far. Alewives. There, there's a lot of projects to restore alewives. Uh, Chad also. Um, Chad and alewives in New England, are, they're trying to, and, and salmon too, but they're having much more uh, success with Chad and with uh, alewives than with salmon. And, until I read the Oyster book, I did not realize the way that all the alewives and herring got into the Great Lakes was the construction of the Erie Canal. Yeah. yeah. That's one of those things I can talk with my clients about now. When we have them in the Potomac, when they're at their peak, you can feel them swimming into the fly line. There are so many of them. You'll really? have a school about 30 feet deep, 40 feet wide, and it won't stop moving for 10 hours that we're out there. And they take flies. They will. They end up getting foul hooked mostly. But yeah. we'll catch... Yeah, they're, they're sort of the bycatch when we're going for hickory and American shad. 
And and shadfish on uh, what, what kind of fly is that? Oddly, they eat my damselfly the most. And then I've got a bunch of other just small, about an inch long, brightly fluorescent yellows, chartreuse, pinks, and oranges. So they're, they're not insectivores. Right. They're filter feeders, and they're biting to protect their eggs from uh, other small fish, bait fish, that would be eating their eggs while they're spawning. So they're not biting to kill them, so it's not a headshot. They're biting them at the tail just to move them out of the way. Similar to what a salmon would do. So you have short-tailed flies that are brightly colored to stand out against the rest of the organisms in the water. And on a good day, you can get 60, 70 shad on a five weight. It is incredibly entertaining. So now they're having a problem in um, like Atlantic Canada, way, way up, Newfoundland, Labrador, because stripers are going up there. And the water's warm now, so they're moving on up. Right, it's it's climate change, and you know it wasn't designed for strikers to go into those rivers. Those rivers are are full of, you know, par and uh, little young salmon, and the, the stripers eat them. So this is a huge problem. They they have the Canadians have an interesting solution. They're trying to make it really uh, enticing for fishermen to go up and fish for strikers in Canada. I'm willing to go. I've got nothing else going on right now. And forget catch and release, you know, just grab them. Right. Well, I wonder, say down here, Norfolk is sort of the northernmost distribution of the American alligator. I wonder if they're going to start moving on north. Maybe if we're going to start seeing tarpon in the Potomac. I'm trying to figure out what southern species might end up here in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I think it's all going to shift with a lot of consequences. And, you know, but for salmon... A salmon can't live in water that's over 68 degrees. They can't live in it and they can't spawn in it. So, you know, if the water temperatures get get warmer, it's nice to think, well, they'll just all move north. But actually what happens is they die. Um, So you had a situation in Alaska last summer. Uh, Alaska had a warm summer and they had good salmon runs. But a lot of the salmon didn't survive to spawning um, because the water was too warm. Actually, if the water's too warm, they just won't spawn. So we find that with the shad also that there's a, it's 54 degrees is the viable fertilization temperature for shad. And that they really won't spawn when it drops below that. They're much active, you know, when the water's in the 70s, but 54 degrees. Oh, I see. They like warm water. They're more active, so they'll hang out. So it's it's cold now. They all drop back down the river, and then in a week or so, when it gets into the seventies and the water warms up, they're gonna their metabolism's warm. They know they can spawn, and they'll they'll come back up the river. So they well, that, come and go during the, the short month or two they're here. That explains to me why they're having more success in New England with shad than with uh, salmon. So when you're doing a, a book on salmon, do you do a lot of research at home? At libraries, and then how much is is traveling to the locations to do the research? Do you get to go up to these Atlantic salmon locations on? I do. I went to uh, salmon places all over the world, uh, Alaska and Russia and uh, Japan and Norway and Scotland and Ireland and Iceland and 
so I, you know, it's always a combination, you know, it's a certain amount of book research. I mean, a lot of book research, if you ever look at all of my books have huge bibliographies. Yes. Um, I, I read a lot of books and papers and, but then I go and I interview people uh, and, I, and I go places and, uh, I talk to river managers and to fishers and biologists uh, working on hatcheries and to uh, salmon farms and uh, to native people and, and, and to sports fishermen. And I, I go to sports fishing places and I fish. <laughs> so you get to bring your gear with you. That's, yeah, yeah. that's brilliant. You know, so that when the book was over, I kind of thought, oh, gee, that's, is that the end of all my salmon trips? Because <laughs> uh, all these salmon trips, I'd go and I'd work really hard and interview a lot of people. And then there'd always be at least a day uh, in which I fished some river in keeping with my belief that if you want to understand the fish, you have to fish for it. Do you have some more memorable locations you were able to fish? Oh, yeah. Um, not necessarily places where I caught the most fish. I love the Blackwater River in County Cork, Ireland, because it's just great to stand in an Irish river and cast. Uh, never caught a salmon. Did catch a nice brown trout. That was about it. Um I, I love some of the Scottish rivers, the River Dee. Caught a fish on the Thurso. I fished a beautiful river in Japan. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was called, but it was in Hokkaido, which is mainly where salmon are these days, in the northernmost island. And they have a mountain that looks exactly like Fujiyama. So, you know, you're, you're fishing and, and you have this mountain in the background. You know, which brings up the snake. I mean, you know, fish for cutthroat and the snake at the Grand Tetons is no more beautiful spot. Actually, there is a more beautiful spot. I love, there's a couple of rivers in Idaho. There's a few rivers in Idaho I love. The Salmon River, which is mainly known for steelhead. But it, it, it's a gorge that in places is deeper than the Grand Canyon, and it's just spectacular. And it's by the, the Sawtooth Range, which are beautiful, rugged mountains. There's a, a place called Silver Creek, which is just a beautiful fishing place. And the water is, is so perfectly clear that you just see the rainbow trout hanging out there. And so you know what they're doing. They're looking at you. So... You know, you really have to sneak up on them to catch them. And it's really fun. You know, it's not, you can't just walk into the river and start casting. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of places I like for fishing. Was there a particular cuisine you got to enjoy more than others while you were traveling for this book? I mean, Japan, of course. You always get to eat great things in Japan. But, you know, I am of the opinion that... Best, here's the best salmon recipe. Catch a wild salmon on a fly, fillet it, grill it with a little salt. Done. <laughs> Keep it simple. Right. It was intended. Right. 
nothing better, you know, to sort of cook it till the, the, the skin's a little crackling and it's just fantastic. Are you familiar with the author Langdon Cook out of Seattle? His book yep. Upstream? Yes. It's the way yep. he describes the fat on a spring run Chinook that is caught in nets. How it is the it'll it'll start a fire. There's so much fat on it when it drips off. I'm not a, a fish eater, but the descriptions that he had made me want to go eat a spring Chinook grilled. Well, the, the, the native people in the Columbia, they used to collect that, that fat that dripped off and use it for various things. You know, it was, a, it was their cooking fat. It, it was a, you know, a basic staple of their uh, diet, their cuisine. Still is for the few natives that still eat traditionally. So what? So when you, when you were traveling to these locations, did you find? You know, we we I, I sort of know about how salmon relate to the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Rim is that major food source. The way it, it evolves around the salmon forest. How are salmon integrated into the environment and culture in other places around, say, the Atlantic Ocean that anglers may not have learned about until this book? I mean, the salmon are. In places where they still have them, because New England is, is, is almost gone. Uh, they're bringing back a bit in the Penobscot in Maine, but outside of that, there, there isn't a lot. But in, uh, in, in Canada and Iceland and Norway and Scotland, it's, it's very much involved with um, bird life. And, of course, it's always involved to the chagrin of fishermen with <laughs> marine mammals. You know, the... The, the whole point is that you know Darwin talked about how you have to maintain a lot of species to have a healthy ecosystem, and every time you lose a species, you're threatening other species, which came to be called biodiversity in the 1980s. Darwin never called it that. All species aren't equal. They don't have equal impact. Salmon is an extremely important species, you know, what they call a keystone species, because so many animals depend on it. So many mammals and birds and insects and other fish. I mean, starting with the fact that the whole life of the river depends <clears throat> on the salmon who spawn and die in the river. They, they, they fertilize the river. And if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have a lot of uh, life that's surrounded with the river. The, 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 the bird life, um, bears, Beavers, a tremendous amount of uh, animal life depends on uh, salmon. And it's being threatened by quite a list of things. I mean, in 1997, I read a book about cod. And this book came out about the time that the uh, northern cod stock collapsed on the Grand Banks of Canada. And everybody for the first time was talking about overfishing. And I say everybody, I mean general public, because, you know, when I was a fisherman in the, in the 1960s, the commercial fishermen were constantly talking about problems of overfishing. But the public was just starting to become aware of it. And then this has become kind of like a mantra, you know, so that like when I told people I was working on salmon, they wanted to start talking about overfishing and, you know, there really isn't a lot of overfishing of salmon. They're, uh, for one thing, they're 
quite easy to regulate because we know what they're doing and when. But in, in just watching what was happening with different fisheries, I mean, why, despite fishing being severely restricted uh, in the Gulf of Maine or completely stopped in the Grand Banks, why hasn't the cod come back? Uh, why, with commercial fishing of Atlantic salmon eliminated, uh, isn't salmon starting to come back and prosper? And... You know, it became clear to me that overfishing is actually the least of our problems. If, if you had a fishery that had no problem other than overfishing, that would be wonderful. That would be such a solvable problem. But there are so many things involved. And the reason I chose to do a book on salmon is that it really illustrates that point as an anadromous fish, you know, being in freshwater and in the ocean. It's hit by everything that we do wrong. So, you know, it, it, it's hit by uh, deforestation and it's hit by pollution and pesticides and bad farming practices and bad management of riverbanks, urban sprawl, uh, clearing forests, um, uh, dams, and climate change and climate change, all these things. So that it occurred to me that really all you would have to do to save the salmon is save the earth. Save the earth and the rest will take care of itself. Right. Right. There it is. Uh, Did you find a common theme with dams and deforestation urban sprawl throughout the Pacific and Atlantic rims where these fish live? No, I mean, isn't it wonderful? Everybody has their own way of destroying rivers. So dams are a big problem in a lot of places. Deforestation is a problem in some places. Um, pollution in some places. You know, forestry in some places. You know, a few places get hit with everything farming practices you know for example in japan where they grow a lot of rice and so they're draining off the rivers to irrigate the rice paddies this is very destructive for salmon and for rivers in general uh, raising cattle on riverbanks is, is very destructive how about just building suburbs on riverbanks and having a lot of houses built along rivers. People think it's really nice to live along the river, but you're killing the river. You know, even bike trails along riverbanks aren't great, you know, because as a fly fisherman, you know that you have to have that wild brush on the riverbank for uh, insect population. So you have insects like stoneflies, which are becoming increasingly rare. It's a great fly, you know, an artificial stonefly ever use them. They, they, they really work. <laughs> I think the fish are glad to see them because, you know, they see this thing and they say, oh, great, a stonefly. I haven't seen one of those in years. I get excited when I see a mayfly. We just don't really have them around here. Yeah. When I'm out somewhere and I get to see a mayfly fluttering, it's, I, I will sit back and take that in and just watch them flutter. Yeah. So I, I was fishing in the Kamchatka, a river called the Ozernaya, which is a kind of an extraordinary experience in itself. And fishing from a boat 
and I got close to a bank. The area is just swarmed with the, the worst insect infestations I've ever seen. I mean, you can't breathe. And that's why it's good for fish also. But I'm, I'm paddling over by this bank, and suddenly my boat is just covered with stoneflies, just covered with them. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, maybe I can put one of these babies on a hook and see what happens. When you got to Kamchatka, were you expecting it to be pristine, but there was still some urbanization in places that was very unexpected. For example, I went to the Galapagos Islands in 1993, and I was very surprised to find discotheques and pool halls right near where all these iconic endemic organisms live. Really? No. Uh, I mean, there are places. There's a there's a city, um, but when you go up where I was fishing in the north, I mean, there's nothing. nothing. There's no, there's no buildings or houses or people. Um, there's just uh, bears. Um, did you see any taman? No, I didn't. I don't think they have them there. I think that's more Mongolia and some other places. But the the thing about the uh, this river that I was fishing in is that you would catch five or six species in a day. You know, they had king salmon, and they had uh, sockeye, and they had grayling, and they had dolly varden, and rainbow trout, and all these different things. So, you know, as soon as you get a hit, you know, as you know. It's like a box of chocolates. You set the hook differently for different fish. So when you get a hit, you got to make a guess at what just hit you know, so how quickly and hard you set the hook. You know, you don't set a hook for a rainbow like you do for a salmon. Um, but, you know, and then it's so exciting as you're, you know, reeling them in and you see what it is. You know? And I was catching, I don't know, 15, 20 fish a day. But, you know, it's the, the insects are so horrible. And they're not in the middle of the river. You know, I just wanted to be in the middle of the river as long as I could. So I would fish for endless hours just to stay away from the insects. You wish you had an N95 mask back then. Well, you know, um, I should have I should have gotten something, but I, I I went to I went to buy something before I left, and the store that I go to was out of them, and I thought, oh, no big deal, big mistake. Interesting thing, I was, uh, I was interviewing a biologist, and a salmon biologist, and he had visited the Pacific Northwest. He had visited the Columbia, and he was looking at this project where they were trying to bring back Chinook to a certain stretch of the Columbia. And he said to me, they're never going to bring him back because they don't have enough insects. I mean, I'm just standing there and there's no insects. And I had never thought about that, but, you know, in places where they have healthy salmon runs, like Alaska and the Kamchatka, uh, they have, you know, they're just overrun with insects. Fascinating. And that's all just from the salmon decaying and giving biomass to the rivers? It's another example of something we eliminate because we don't like it, you know? (laughs) 
we eliminate lots of things that are essential to the natural order because they're things we don't like, like the way, you know, we got rid of all the predators in the West. Mm-hmm. It, it, it turns out that the natural order actually, you know, it needs wolves and bears and mountain lions and, uh, and it needs insects. Everything has a role. Yeah. And plus the fact that, you know, if you use insecticides to get rid of insects, you're going to kill fish too. I've never been a big bug spray person. My clients are always asking for it. And like I said, in the middle of the river, there's usually no bugs because there's nothing out there for them to eat. But right. I just, I usually just cover up, but I've been to places in Maine. I swear the mosquitoes were biting me through my car hearts. Yeah. This is Maine mosquitoes. They're a, they're a subspecies. They're known for their viciousness. Yeah. I'm making that up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what gear did you bring with you for all these fishing trips? Did you have one gear bag for just labeled salmon? I did have one bag, and I had, you know, a pair of, uh, I had a pair of waders that, uh, you know, I like waders that have a zipper down the front. Uh, something they should have figured out a long time ago. <laughs> you know? and, a, and, a, and a pair of boots and uh, two rods and a couple of reels. A, a one-handed rod and a two-handed rod, you know, a spay rod. Do you tie your own flies? I sometimes tie my own flies, but I rarely use them. I mean... <laughs> I rarely tie them. I mean, most of the time when I go fishing, I just go to the local shop and ask them what's what's working. That's usually the best thing to do. The locals have that knowledge and they know what the fish eat, where they are. Right. And sometimes I, I tie flies. I, I uh, tied some nice salmon flies in, in Ireland, but they were the fly that I was using. I was just copying you know, somebody else's fly. I've been experimenting with these flies because if you read Hemingway, Hemingway always fished with a fly called a McGinty. And a McGinty was a 19th century fly that they don't use anymore. And it imitated a bee, a dead bee floating down river. And I got a, uh, uh, on the internet, I was able to get the, uh, the pattern. And so I, I've tied, now I have a bunch of McGinty's that I want to use, but I've yet to fish anywhere where I saw dead bees floating, so I haven't used it. Yeah, that's one of those mishaps the bee must make. I rescued one from the, the splash zone in Oahu, and then it stung me. It wasn't the nicest way to repay someone to saving your life. That's about the only time I've, I, they're in the pool all the time. In the neighborhood swimming pool. But yeah, I don't see them in trout water. Yeah. They're always in the swimming pool. I'm always the guy they call over because I'll pick up anything except spiders and scorpions. So I'm always the guy picking things out of the pool for people. Um, and we try to get the bees to dry their wings so they can fly off again. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
And how does that work? It usually does. The kids are excited. I'll just put it on my shoulder till it dries off and fly away. Unless it panics and bites you. Yeah, that's what that one did. It's I was I can't really explain to them that I'm trying to help them. Yeah, you get a panicky bee. There's nothing worse, you know. And we have a carpenter bee named Bobby that lives outside our carport. And since we're out there every day at four, it's been named by my daughter. And I keep trying to tell her and my wife they don't sting. They will not listen to me. Every time that bee is just buzzing around, they scream and run. Well, I keep trying to explain to kids that bees don't normally sting unless you stick your hand in their hive or something really threatening. And only male bee or only female bees can sting you. Well, only female bees are out there. I mean, <laughs> you see a bee, chances are it is a female. Have you written about bees at all? I have. I wrote a, a book came out last year for uh, a, a YA book, you know, for teenagers um, called Bugs in Danger. About yes, okay. Fearing insects. I've gotten, my daughter has the kids version of salt. I'll have to get her that one. How old is your daughter? She's eight. She'll be nine soon. Ah, so she should be re- she should be ready for that. Oh, God, yeah. I wish she would read. She has all this time to read right now, and she, yeah, it's it's difficult, especially because they're supposed to be doing online learning, and the whole system shut down the first day with schools. So it's back to me entertaining her, trying to keep her occupied from eight until four every day. It shut down. She's not getting her school. No, well, school's done it for the whole year. Oh, and. Yeah, uh, Monday they were supposed to go back online with Blackboard and then Google meetups, and it, someone hacked it, and the whole thing crashed. Yeah, well, my my daughter's in college, and she's uh, uh, she's doing a lot of stuff online uh, and reading a lot of uh, uh, assignments. Does she get a brag that her dad is a famous author? Uh, when it suits your purpose, yeah. Very nice. <laughs> uh, sometimes she'll have a teacher who's read something of mine or even starts talking about it, and then she works it, you know? <laughs> they, they recognize the last name? Yeah, it's not that common a name, you know? As with mine. And would you have any idea maybe where our name came from? We came from Kiev in 1890s, and someone at Ellis Island gave us Snow White. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm told that it's kind of a myth about the making up names at Ellis Island, that the immigrants themselves made up names. The Ellis Island officials didn't. Okay. As the joke about everyone being named Tony, because they had a piece of paper pinned in them that said, to New York, to NY. So right. everyone thought their name was Tony. But your name looks like it's a, it's a misspelling or a simplified spelling of something else. Or... The other possibility is, do you come, does your family come from a place where there are seven dwarfs? No. And we we were, I think, before the story. I don't know. I mean, I don't really know the origin of the story. I don't either. Yeah, I know how Disney takes a lot of uh, fables. Disney didn't originate anything. Right. They just take the fables. Like Little Mermaid, when I found out... once there was a statue of the Little Mermaid in Denmark, and then it's a whole other story. It's like, wow, they took that one, made a billion dollars with it. Yeah, maybe your family comes from a place where 
Because Snow White was probably a made-up name. In the original story, the name probably wasn't Snow White. That sounds like a Disney name. So I don't know. Okay. Before I ask you some random questions and let you go, what do you want readers to take most out of this new publication of yours? Well, you know, a couple of things. One thing is that this is one of the most incredible animals in the entire animal kingdom. But this animal deserves the regard of, of uh, uh, lions and leopards and elephants. And, you know, it's, uh, this is a, a fish that can jump 11 feet in the air. Uh, I mean, think about that. That's like a human being jumping 50 feet. They can accelerate as fast as an automobile. They have this life story that seems like it's written by a Greek tragedian. You know, they, they, they go out to sea and they gain 95% of their weight out at sea uh, because they're such effective uh, marine hunters. And then from thousands of miles away, they somehow find the river where they were born. And when they find the river where they were born, they then find the spot, the actual spot in the river where they were born. And this is an unstoppable journey. Nothing will stop them from getting there. They'll jump waterfalls, they'll jump dams, they'll do whatever they have to do to get there. Uh, I've, I've seen them in Scotland jumping high waterfalls and some of them make it and some of them don't and fall back down on the rocks and kind of shake themselves off and go do it again until they get there. Uh, they're, they're, they're unstoppable. They completely change their appearance for spawning. <clears throat> they, the, the males become bright red and have hooked noses and humps and become very weird looking things, uh, which greatly disturbed Darwin. You know, because Darwin believed that nothing in nature happens without a purpose. So why are they doing this? It takes a huge amount of energy. Salmon, once they enter the river, stop eating. Because if they continued eating the way they eat at sea, they would wipe out the river. So they do no more eating. And they just live off of the uh, protein and fat that they have stored from being at sea. And then they spend a considerable amount of this on... Uh, developing this weird look. What they do is they take all the pigmentation from their flesh and force it out onto their skin so that a spawned salmon is like an albino. It's completely white-fleshed. And they do this because, you know, he eventually, Darwin eventually figured this out. He also wondered, you know, why, why do certain beetles develop antlers that they never use for warfare? And why do peacocks, he was really bugged, right? Why do peacocks have those feathers? And he realized that all these things were about attracting females. And, you know, the men in Victorian England really hated this idea more than evolution. This was the most hated Darwin idea. They just didn't like this idea that men dress up to attract women. The dandies. Right. Right. And, you know, you, you just, I mean, they're so weird looking, especially a sockeye. And it's like, you know, it's like seeing this guy in this gaudy red plaid suit and weird haircut. And you, and you say to him, why are you dressed like that? And he says, oh, man, the girls really like it. But they do. <laughs> they do. It works. And uh, once they finally spawn, they have used it all up and they just roll over and die. 
a few Atlantic survive and, and, and will go back out to sea and come back and spawn again. Pacific don't. None of the Pacific do. They have served their purpose, guaranteeing, guaranteeing the continuation of their species, and then they roll over and die. I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. We don't deserve salmon. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing, you know, that I want people to uh, come away with, well, first of all, as with all my books, there's a good story there. So I want people to enjoy the story. I mean, I trace the whole history of salmon back to ancient times. But I also want them to come away understanding, you know, when I looked at this thing, I looked at, you know, in ancient times, there were salmon was being diminished in rivers because of practices like netting and blocking rivers. And in the Middle Ages, they started, there were all these ordinances against blocking rivers. And, uh, the Magna Carta specifies that the King of England cannot put a net across a salmon river. And, but then it got worse with the Industrial Revolution, and they, they, they built these factories. And they, In the they, Basque land, you mentioned that, how they, it was uh, pigment, maybe? There was something they were doing on the rivers in the Basque land, and it just started killing off all the salmon. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, you know, you, you build dams to power mills, and then the mills pollute. <laughs> so you get this double whammy. You now have a blocked and poisoned river. So then, yeah, I, I mean, salmon disappeared from most of Europe. People don't realize, you know, there used to be salmon in all over France and Germany and Poland and northern Spain. And uh, you used to see salmon jumping in the Seine in Paris. You used to see salmon in the Thames. And uh, all this is gone. And in the Industrial Revolution, they just killed all the rivers in Britain. And then in New England, people largely of British origin did the exact same thing. And then it was New Englanders who went to the Pacific Northwest with this bright idea, we can take this place that has no economy and we can build hydroelectric dams so that they have this huge amount of energy and build an economy on that and kill the rivers with their dams. So, you know, I'm researching this and I'm thinking, well, why isn't anybody learning anything here? We and are then, one of the dumbest organisms there is. Well, I realize that it's because they're not trying to learn. The people who do these things regard them as big success stories. You know, they made Britain the greatest industrial power in the world, and they made New England the industrial center of North America, and the, and they turned uh, the Pacific Northwest into this economic powerhouse of you know airplanes and computers and all that stuff, and, and they they accomplished what they set out to accomplish. So that's when I realized that the whole problem is that we have a wrong-headed concept of what economic development should be. That we need to completely rethink economic development, that you need to develop economies in ways that don't um, damage the earth. Um, you know, some politicians, you know, are, are, are always saying that you can't 
you know, you can't do these environmental measures because it'll, uh, it'll hurt the economy and you'll lose jobs. There's nothing that says that jobs have to destroy the planet. There's nothing that says that economic activities have to destroy the planet. We, we need to rethink them, you know. It's when European Americans came to America with really very simple ideas about economic development, not grand schemes, but they were killing off the salmon. And they would look at the Native Americans who had their whole lives centered on salmon, but they weren't killing it off. And they thought, well, why is this? And they thought, well, you know, because they're not very good fishermen, so they can't take that much fish. And, you know, they just use it for sustenance and they're not, uh, you know, it's not a commercial product. And this is all completely wrong. It's utter nonsense. The, the uh, uh, Native Americans live in villages and have a lot of trade between one village and another. And salmon is a main uh, commodity of trade. And they were superb salmon fishermen. If you read the diaries of Lewis and Clark and Mackenzie and all those early explorers, you know, they talk about how if they wanted to get salmon, they had to find some uh, Indians to get it for them because the Indians were the ones who knew how to do it. So why weren't they destroying their, uh, their fisheries? Because their root principle of economic development was that you have to take care of the river and you have to take care of the salmon. You can't destroy. If you, if you mistreat the river, first of all, uh, they, they, they believe that you know, salmon went into the river and then they went out and they came back the next year. They didn't really understand this thing about generations, but every year salmon came and they come to the river to feed us. It's a gift and we have to take care of it or they won't give it to us anymore. And so they, 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 they understood that you have to protect your resources or you'll be finished. And that's the way we have to think about economic development. Maybe we have a chance for a fresh start right now with so many people out of work. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that with the economy so shut down. You know, it wouldn't be nice if people started talking about starting it up better. Mm hmm. I also think about how uh, so many people have been cooperating in social distancing and doing whatever we have to do to, to beat this thing. And I think, why have we failed to convince them that that's how we have to act about climate change, which is, is a far more devastating problem than a pandemic. In fact, pandemics are just a, a, a small wing of the problem of climate change all right all right well i'm gonna ask you some questions now and all right well oh, baker's dozen question who is your favorite james bond <laughs> um you mean the actor yes who? oh uh um uh what's his name the irish actor um uh pierce brosnan pierce brosnan yeah he's a wonderful actor god all right if you could be quarantined in a fishing destination where would you choose Quarantine and a fishing. Oh, you mean right now? I yes. think about it all the time. I think about all that all the time. And as I'm, you know, ordering food, which isn't easy. It's not that easy to get food in New York these days. I'm thinking, you know, if I were just out somewhere by a river and, you know, for my family, there's three of us, you know, I could catch, you know, three trout a day. That wouldn't be hard to do. You know? uh, where, where would I do it? Well, um, I guess you would have to do it in a place that uh, 
was reasonably safe. I hear Wyoming's pretty good. Idaho, where I re- usually fish, is having a lot of problems. Oh, no. Um, you know, maybe I should be quarantined on the snake and just catch cutthroats. They're good eating, and they're, they're, they're very cooperative. They're foolish fish that like to eat artificial flies. Right. All right. Uh, this may be biased because you're a New Yorker from Connecticut. What is your favorite style of pizza? And if you could only choose one topping for life, what would it be? My favorite style of pizza? New Haven, Sicilian, New York, Chicago. Well, I, I personally think that I think that New York pizza is overrated and Chicago pizza is even more overrated. <laughs> and so I alienate lots of people in New York and Chicago with these opinions. What about Frank Pepe's tomato pies? You know, I, I, I mean, go to Naples. <laughs> Naples has great pizzas. They're, they're round and, 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 you know, mozzarella and onions, maybe some anchovies. Okay. Is there a fishing trip you'd like to do over again? Oh, there's lots of tri- uh, trips I'd like to do over again. I'd like to go back to the Blackwater someday. I'll catch a fish on it. I'd like to fish the D uh, in Scotland. I, I have never fished, but would like to fish the Grand Cascopedia in, uh, in Quebec. Do you have a most played album? A most played album. Okay, so this isn't the answer you're looking for, but I got to be honest with you. It's, it's Casal's recording of the box suites. Uh, it doesn't get any better. Okay. I, I, I play the cello, so I'm partial uh, music. What animal, if you could bring back from extinction, would you bring back to Earth? I was just thinking about an album, so I, I, oh. um, Janis Joplin also. <laughs> I think my mom saw her once in the village. Yeah, Janis Joplin was amazing. Jimi Hendrix also. Anyway, what did you just ask me about? If you could bring an animal back from extinction? An animal back from extinction. Well, just for starters, I'd like to bring back all the 40% of salmon subspecies that have gone extinct. Uh, we, could, we could start with that. What is the strangest thing you found while fishing? The strangest thing I have found while fishing. Well, you know, I used to live for a few months of the year in Gloucester. And once when my daughter was really little, I took her fishing, surf casting. And I I held in this heavy thing. I thought maybe it was a cod because cod don't fight. They're just pure weight. But when I got it in, it was actually um, waders. (laughs) (laughs) How do you lose waders? I thought that was odd. Well, it poses the question, so where's the fisherman? (laughs) Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's see. What is your local fishery and your local fly shop? My local fishery, uh, you mean the closest place that I fish? Yeah. Where would you go if you had time? Uh, the Batten Kill in Manchester, Vermont. Uh, there are closer places, but for some reason I've just never gotten to know them. Uh, but that's, uh, it's pretty nice. It's tough river. Um, there are no fools. Those little brownies and 
Brook Trucks. I usually buy my tackle. I'm in Manhattan, and I buy my tackle uh, usually in uh, the Orvis store in Midtown. All right. I've not been there since they moved. Uh, it's it's pretty good, and you know I buy. Uh, they're, they're they're good on material for tying flies. If you, if you want to tie flies, and, uh, but they also have a lot of tied flies and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of good stuff. I've gotten creative with fly tying. <laughs> I recently tied a fly, and it called for some kind of white tipped brown feather from. I don't know what it was, a turkey or something. Nobody had this feather. And I'm walking down the street thinking, where can I get this feather? And I see these two white pigeon feathers in front of me on the sidewalk. So I, I cut them up and took a brown magic marker and browned them up and left the tips white. And uh, worked great. Fantastic. My magic marker is uh, waterproof. Yeah. With, with all of your travel and research, where is the best sandwich you've had? The best sandwich I've had. Oh, my God. What would be the best sandwich I've had? Well, to tell you the truth, um, I lived in Paris for a long time. And I just used to love a baguette with jambon de Paris and uh, Swiss cheese and butter. Mm. I can eat that right now. Yeah, I could too. What's your favorite piece of fishing gear? Is there something that you have to take on every trip? Well, my waders with a zipper down the middle. There we go. <laughs> um, if you had a superpower to make you a better angler, which superpower would you choose? Oh. Like, you know, it wouldn't have to be a superpower. Just better coordination would be nice. <laughs> I'm not a very coordinated person, and I always slip and slide on the rocks. I've never actually fallen in the river, but I come close, and I use one of those sticks, you know. Um, but I was I was fishing with uh, Ivan Chinar, who's the founder of Patagonia, who's, you know, 80 years old, and his background is mountain climbing. And this guy just sort of hops from rock to rock, and... Never falters, never slips. And I, I was watching him and thinking, man, I wish I could do that. Apparently when he... You can tell, you can tell Yvonne that I think he has a superpower. Yeah, when, when he first started playing around with those aluminum bars on his wading boots, right? The, the description of him was that he was jumping off of rocks like he was 12 years old or something. That he yeah. was just one rock to another. That, um, that he just he reversed an age yeah well he he said that that was the secret of his success and talked me into getting a pair not as good as he is with the same boots where would you go back in time to fish before humans destroyed it if you had a delorean or some other time traveling device the rivers of the highlands when they were really plentiful must have been really something but also you know, there's some Basque rivers that I, I, I love, but you just, they don't have many fish on a full, you know, the Arati River in, in northern Navarra. I'd love to fish that really full of fish or uh, the Binisoa or the Nivelle um, because they're places that I love. And my final question, 
I need a story to, that you can tell that you had to have been there to have believed what happened. <laughs> okay. So I'm in the Ozunaya River in the Kamchatka, right? And the Kamchatka, the northern Kamchatka, has the largest per acreage uh, grizzly bear population in the world. It's just full of these huge brown bears. So they have these dogs, which are basically bred as sled dogs that they've trained to chase away bears. So uh, wonderful dogs. And so I have three of them, or our camp, which has, there were four or five of us fishing, and, and we had three of these dogs. And I love dogs, and dogs know that I love them. So they all sat by me, and they put their head in my lap, and they rolled over next to me, and I'm scratching one on the belly. And a grizzly bear walks up. And I said, hey, guys, this is what you're supposed to do. And they're going like, uh, a little over to the left, please. <laughs> and the bear's getting closer and closer. And, and finally, when I'm starting to really worry about this, the dogs finally jump up. And, we'll, and, the, and the, the bear turns around to leave. And the dog bites him in the butt. <laughs> wow. The last I saw of the bear, he's running away, rubbing his butt, looking back with this sort of disconcerted look. Oh my goodness. That is amazing. All right. Well, Mark, where can listeners purchase your book and other books that you've written in the past? The other 32 books? Well, these days, you know, with bookstores closed, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you can, you can buy books online from your local independent bookstore. Most independent bookstores, people don't seem to know this, but they have very efficient online services. And wherever you go, Normally, to buy books, uh, you can go there and order them online. That is a uh, that's a great way to get books because uh, you know more than ever now we really need to support these independent bookstores because independent bookstores have a very um, small margin, profit margin, and you know while their stores are closed, they're still paying rent and. You know, if they're in Boston or New York, or it depends where they are, but some of these rents are really serious. And um, these stores are going to go out of business if we don't support them. So support me and buy my book and get it from an independent bookstore and support them. All right. Well, Mark, this was a true honor to be able to speak to you. I've been reading your books for about 20 years now, and you are by far my favorite author. Well, thank you very much. And I'm really looking forward to this book because anything about salmon, I will read. I just happen to live in a place where there are no salmon. So I read as much about them as possible. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Next year, I have a book coming out about the history of uh, fly fishing. We could talk. Oh, about. my gosh. Well, when you do a tour through D.C., be sure to – I'm sure I will look for it so I can go see you. But I will definitely try and get you out some, for some urban fly fishing in and around the city. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. I usually do something at politics and prose. In fact, even this book, it was my last, my last event before the pandemic shut me down was uh, politics and prose. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Nice talking to you. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
Facebook.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.